Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. On today's Conversations with Big Rich, I talk with Bob Ham. Bob is a 2006 inductee into the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. As a pioneer advocate category, Bob started off off-roading in the mid-60s with a trip to Baja. From Baja to sand to Broncos to sand rails, a founder of Corva, Bob has fought the good fight to save off-roading. Bob, thank you very much for coming on board and, and discussing your life with us. No problem. All right. My first question for you is going to be my standard one is where were you born and raised? Well, I was born uh, during World War II in a place called Gallipolis, Ohio, um, but moved all around for the first 10 years of my life. Um, my my father uh, was in charge of uh, munitions plants. He was a Harvard trained chemist and so instead of being drafted he was drafted to take over uh, a bunch of the conversion of a bunch of factories that they had then so we moved all over the midwest while he uh, managed what what they referred to as japanese sleeping powder in those days which is basically <laughs> bombs right uh, and then um i Grew up mostly in northern New Jersey and Teaneck, New Jersey, and later Hillsdale. Um, went to high school and also moved back and forth. So I actually graduated from San Marino High School in near Pasadena. So um, that's kind of my education and where I got started. And once I was in California, that's when I started going up to places like Jawbone Canyon with my old Buick, and we'd go chasing around the dirt roads, and I kind of liked that. And that's what eventually got me down to Baja with better vehicles. Right. And while you were in college, you were in San Diego State, is that correct? Yes, I went to San Diego State, and of course, that uh, was just a... Short hop in those days uh, down to Tijuana and then Ensenada. And that's where you, is that where you really fell in love with with the with the wilds, you might say, or yes. off-roading? Yeah, that, 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 that got me hooked. There, there were very, very few paved roads in Baja. Once you left Tijuana, 
um, you know, it was just dirt roads all over the place. And they took you to interesting spots. And, and uh, I started picking up Spanish and, and, you know, really getting engaged with the culture down there and, and the food. Right. Now, the people and the food down there are, are just fantastic. And it's still, even to this day, still kind of like the Wild West. You know, it's not, uh, it's not as civilized or, I should say, developed um, as the United States. It, it, it isn't uh, as the United States, but it certainly is a heck of a lot more developed than when I uh, used to go down there. Uh, any, the major roads between cities were a bit of a challenge to get from one place to another. Of course, now it's all paved for the most part. Uh, a little sad for me, but, um, you know, that's what happens. Right. Progress, they call it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about those those early days when you went down to, to Baja. Was that, uh, it was, were you fishing? Um, were you in the surfing scene or were you guys just hanging out? Just hanging out. We'd, uh, we'd find different things to do, different places to go. Uh, knew most every good cantina from, from uh, Rosarito to... Probably a hundred miles past Ensenada. Nice. <laughs> I would imagine they were a little different then because they, they weren't touristy. That's correct. There was uh, you, you kind of had to speak a little bit of Spanish at least just to get along because uh, unlike today where there's English spoken in almost every establishment that caters to Americans – when we were going to some of these places, they really hadn't seen or had many customers from the United States. So, you know, we were, we were sort of a curiosity just as much as, as they might have been to us. Right. I can understand that. I We've traveled into Costa Rica and Japan and Mexico and found that we like getting off the beaten path in those areas and getting away from where all of the, um, say, American tourists and, and sightseers go. And we still come across that where, you know, there is a communication barrier. But, you know, as long as, as you smile and, um, you know, try try to communicate, they are wide open to uh, to having Americans, you know, in their establishments. That's for sure. That's correct. <laughs> so... When you were down there, you just hanging out and stuff. Um, what what kind of vehicles were you driving at that time? Um, I had a, a 1969 Bronco that I brought brand new and did a lot of travel in it around around just about every place in Baja, and then as as time went on, I, I picked up different vehicles. I've had Baja bugs that I took down there and, and sand rails and so on. Um, just kind of grew up with with a different off-road vehicle every few years just, just because I either wanted to go different places or uh, wanted more horsepower or more capability. Okay. And when you 
when you went down to Baja, did you get into the into the racing aspect of of traveling in Baja? The didn't race uh, well, except for uh, a couple of times. I, I pre ran with a friend of mine that that was in the races, and I'm also a member of Checkers, which is. Uh, uh, the best off-road vehicle pit club, off-road racing pit club that there there is in in Baja or the United States. Okay. And uh, how many times did you did you, or was there like a long stretch of period where you went down there for the races, or was it just kind of hit and miss? Um. No, I probably went to virtually every Baja 1000 since the 69 event. Uh, this year I've missed a few races. The first time I've, I've not been down there, I think, for Baja 1000 in, in, well, since the 60s. Wow, that's, that's quite the track record. That's awesome. And did you have a chance to meet a lot of the, a lot of the racers, or did you kind of stick with your pit crew? Uh, st- stuck with my pit crew. I've I've met a, a whole bunch of them off and on over the years, and and a lot more as a result of being inducted into the Off Road Hall of Fame in in uh, 2006. Uh, been on the board of directors with some of what were once my idols, and so on. I got to know them pretty well. Uh, working with them on on various boards and commissions with or committees with the uh, Ormhoff. Well, that's awesome. And when you, uh, as you were down in Mexico and then wheeling, you know, going off-roading here in, in, uh, in the States, you did a lot of stuff on the, like in the beach areas, the Pismo and some of the areas that are now closed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what kind of got me started with Corva. Um, we started hearing a lot of noise about that Pismo Beach was was in trouble and be getting close to being closed. And we'd already lost uh, places like up around Fort Ord, Marina Beach. And... Uh, uh, there was a, a sand spits at Morro Bay, little places that we used to be able to go, and, and one by one they were they were getting closed down. So that's when I started working with a couple of other uh, folks that I knew from from going to places like Pismo, and um, we well first I was a, I was a member of a. a dune buggy club there was dune buggies and jeeps called the los aventureros and we tried to join the four-wheel drive association because i knew that they were beginning to do some work and in uh, land use advocacy and they turned us down because in those days a club had to be 100 percent four by four and since we were sort of uh a bastard organization, I guess you'd say, with <laughs> with dune dune buggies as uh, as well as four buys. They they said we weren't eligible, so that's when we got really serious about forming Corva, and, and so we found other dune buggy clubs and and other groups that uh, were 
were interested and not otherwise aligned with the four-wheel drive association or uh, were perhaps members of AMA District 37 or 36, but were uh, in those days all all the AMA groups were mostly doing was was uh, racing and not so much land use advocacy. So we we formed a confederation and gradually we were certain enough that this is the direction we had to go. So we did form Corva and incorporated it in 1971. And then we got involved with getting bills uh, written. Uh, uh, the very first one was the Off-Highway Vehicle Act of 1971 that created the uh, basically created a, an off-highway vehicle program in California and moved on from there. Uh, eventually found out I was pretty good at the legislative stuff. And so when my employment moved me to Sacramento, I kind of wound up uh, eventually getting a job with the legislature and uh, really took over from there once once I had been a legislative staffer for oh, about six, seven years. Uh, I left and went out on my own and uh, took over the lobbying efforts for the Motorcycle Industry Council when their uh, lobbyist retired and subsequently formed the Off-Road Vehicle Legislative Coalition, which was all of the volunteer groups like Corva, and AMA districts, uh, a few others uh, that were out there. And, and uh, that became the legislative effort for the off-road clubs uh, as, as far as keeping things moving legislatively to protect and provide opportunity for more off-road off vehicle uh, use in California. Excellent. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad there was people like you back then that, that would take the bull by the horns and, and start looking at the future and what was, what was happening. Um, you know, we've lost a lot, um, even with all the work that has been done. And I can't imagine that we'd have probably any open spaces to, uh, to off-road in had you guys, you know, back then not gotten, organized and started on the land use efforts. Yeah, and we, we were lucky in that we had a, a built-in advocate in the legislature, a guy named Gene Chappie, uh, who is also a Hall of Famer, but he was in a Jeep club in Northern California and uh, El Dorado County, got himself elected to the state assembly and it was him that helped bring us a bunch of us together. He, he called a meeting uh, in Sacramento in his legislative office. And, and I remember he's just started. It's all over, guys. You know, we've been running, doing our own thing and avoiding uh, anybody's rules and regulations. Uh, but there was almost a bill passed the year before that would have severely regulated off-road vehicles, would have registered us and so on. And 
the only reason it died, the bill died, was because the author of the bill had a heart attack and died, and then nobody picked, picked up the bill and ran with it after after he was gone. So what Chappie was telling us is that that issue isn't going away, it's coming back. We've got to take the bull by the horn, and that's when we formed a bill. He said, we're, we're going to get registered, so let's get registered, but let's make it a program that works the way the boating program works, where there's a lot of revenue collected, and that is used to make sure, ensure that there are facilities uh, in boating case, launching ramps and harbors and things like that. And so as he envisioned, we would buy up land or buy up trail easements and, and so on to ensure that we would have offered vehicle places to go in perpetuity. So that's that's how we got started. And um, Assemblyman Chappie actually enlisted the support of, of an environmentalist-leaning uh, assemblyman named Ed Zeberg, and so that's why it's called the Chappie Zeberg Act of 1971 that set up the Green Sticker Program uh, that kind of got things started. Huh. That I didn't know that. That's awesome. That is awesome that he was able to get a liberal leaning or environment, environmental leaning representative to help as well. Yeah. They, they, when I first started around the legislature, that was common practice was, was, uh, to get major bills done. You get both sides that were that were in the fight, and said, "Okay, you know, you hate us, and uh, we hate you, but we know something's got to be done. So let's figure out what we can agree upon." And uh, in this case, it it uh, was something that certainly had legs. It, it's still there today, as as the model offered vehicle program in the states. Yeah, true. That's how we have the uh, the off road uh, or the state vehicle recreation areas, um, yeah. like Prairie City and some of the others. That's uh, that's important. Um, yeah, was that bill that started it at all? Yeah, it, it's too bad that uh, here I'm going jumping on the politic box, but you know it's it's too bad that we uh, that that's a lost art form of working together. It seems to be, uh, and it's it's a shame. I I enjoyed working in that environment when I worked in the legislature. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, I, I mentioned in in uh, one of those articles that Judy Smith did was um, there was a time when we were having difficulty getting some attention from some of the environmentalist leaning legislators. So I got cheap uh, when uh, the uh, uh, score was going to have a, the first time they, they had the, the safari class, which was a timed event and not a straight out race. Uh, I got Jeep to loan me a new Cherokee 
And then I went to the legislature and found an assemblyman who had just been elected. He had actually defeated uh, an uh, offered vehicle oriented legislator. So I went to him and said, hey, do you want to learn about this? How would you like to be my co-driver? And we'll go down and race in the safari class. And he liked the idea. We did it. We got to be good friends. And from that moment on, anytime there were bills that came up uh, where I needed some help, I, I could ask him and could just about 100% count on his support and, and his vote. And it used to drive some of the enviros nuts. They, they didn't understand why they were losing uh, this assemblyman's vote every time a bill came up with off-road. And they had no idea of how I was pulling that off. It was, it was kind of fun. That That's great. Um, I know just from personal experience, taking people out wheeling for the first time or off-roading for the first time, how it is addicting. And then they start to understand that, you know, that what we're doing is just, you know, we're not blazing new trails or or new lines, paths in just open areas. I mean, we are we are following, you know, trails and roads and and established areas that that have always been used um, since the beginning of of motorized vehicle traffic. Yeah is very important to us. And, and once we get people out there that have never done it, that never gotten off the pavement, they, they, un, they start to understand why there's others that are, that do enjoy it. Uh, on, on this trip that I took uh, on the, in the safari class at the score race, we got to the, to the bottom of the hill going up to Mike's, I said, you know, why don't you, why don't you take the next twenty miles? Which, of course, was was up to Mike's, and he got a, a, a real appreciation for you know it's a pretty good stretch of road. It was a lot rougher back in, in, in nineteen sixty nine, and um, when we got to the top, he said, uh, I, "I think I'm done now. Can you take over?" But, <laughs> But he did, he did really get it. But the other thing that I got out of that trip was I was talking about some of the problems that we had with our trail system that used to be in existence. When Caltrans comes through and cuts a new road and it parallels a piece of our trail or actually takes over the right-of-way of, of what used to be the right-of-way for the trail, and it becomes a highway that makes it illegal for green stickered vehicles. So when we used to be able to take a sand rail or something and, and go on a long trip, uh, we're now stuck because we're not legal on the highway for the three or four mile connection. And in this case, I was talking about um, where, where there was a section going down uh, to the road that that uh, heads up to to Mike's, there was a four or five mile section of highway 
And I told him, in California, we, we'd be dead. That's the end of our trip because we can't take a green sticker on that. And there ought to be a law that allows vehicles to use certain stretches of highway, green stickered vehicles, to either connect a trail or to leave a trail to go into a nearby town to get supplies, fuel, whatever, and go back to off-roading. And the next year, uh, he wrote uh, Assembly Bill 1201. And to this day, it's possible to have certain sections of highway in California designated by the local jurisdiction as a dual-use highway and you can connect trails for those purposes to either obtain fuel supplies, services, uh, lodging, or to connect two trail segments that have been uh, disconnected because of a paved road going through or a highway going through it. So um, it was a productive trip taking the legislator along. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's uh, that's really good. The only time that I've done anything like that was when we were up on the Rubicon after after the incident where they closed down Spider Lake, and it was because of the you know there there's all sorts of different things that were that brought it about. But um, one of the the local guys up here, Sweeney, um, put together groups along with Dell Albright to where we would take. Um, law enforcement and um, judges, federal judges, um, you know, regular judges into the Rubicon and show them what it was that we were doing. And along with Forest Service employees that may not have ever gotten into the Rubicon because they didn't have vehicles that were capable, you know, they're driving around in their green trucks. And so that really helped establish the the right-of-way and through the Forest Service and, and everything that we now have to keep the Rubicon open. And um, those trips were outstanding where we got to take, you know, like we had a judge with us, a federal judge out of, uh, he lived in Placerville area, but he was based in South Lake Tahoe where his, uh, where his court was. And we you know, he had never been on the Rubicon, yet he was deciding, um, you know, violations and, and whatever Forest Service employees would write as a as a federal violation. He was he was overseeing those. And then, you know, now after he got an appreciation for that, you know, he he had a better understanding of what what the issues were up on the trail. Yeah, it's a, there's, there's nothing better than taking a, a decision maker out and kind of change all of his images that that they get built up by reading about what we do and then when they actually see it no we're not driving all over the place we're we're sticking pretty much to the trails because to do otherwise uh would be nuts it's difficult enough just to stay on the trail and make it make it through there. Uh, but when you start going cross country, uh, you're, you're really asking to have your vehicle become a permanent piece of the landscape because it's going to get stuck. And, and 
and difficult to ever unstick. Right. So eventually you ended up working in the Reagan administration um, when Reagan was governor of California. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how that's how I got to Sacramento. Um, I was working for an oil company and in the pricing department. And then there was the Arab oil embargo and the shortage and fuel was allocated. Uh, so pricing became not a very difficult thing. <laughs> People would pay whatever they could just to get it. So it, it became uh, something that, that uh, the state needed to run this allocation program because of the shortage. And I happened to be in Sacramento on uh, some other business for the oil company. And they asked me, you know, we're kind of looking for somebody who understands this stuff. Would you be interested in coming to Sacramento and helping us put together the allocation program? So um, that's how I got hired into the Reagan administration to, to run that program for the last couple of years, last, I guess, year and a half of the Reagan administration and, and then into Jerry Brown's era. And you were able to stay there through part of Brown's administration? Yeah, I, I, I became civil service, so um, he was stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> but then I, I, I moved on from there um, since – since I now had a uh, pretty good understanding of, uh, of state government and a friend of ours, uh, a guy named Bob Hayes, who was a district 37 racer, got himself elected to the state assembly. Uh, so I started meeting a lot of the assembly members and uh, pretty soon the, the, uh, Republican minority leader in the assembly asked me to come work uh, for the Republicans. And so I actually worked for the legislature uh, for about six years before I moved on and started lobbying. But I, I learned all of the nuances of how legislation goes through and so on, because I very quickly uh, got promoted up to, to the position of chief committee consultant for a legislative committee. And that gave me a great background then to when I decided to go out and lobby on behalf of the MIC and the Off-Road Vehicle Legislative Coalition. I was uh, pretty well skilled in the nuances of how bills actually really got through uh, the legislature as opposed to the uh, brochure that you get when you walk into a legislative office in Sacramento. It says how a bill becomes law. Well, uh, it's, there's a lot more to it than, than than what that pamphlet would describe. And and I was pretty much privy to uh, a lot of how how that actually happened. So it it helped me be effective at what I did. Right, because there's a lot more wheeling and dealing going on than. Than what that pamphlet would uh, would lead you to believe. Yeah, exactly. 
And I guess that's one reason that that so much of the advocacy is, or at least maybe not the advocacy, that but the um, the lobbying is done by lawyers is because they have a better understanding of how that that back that back end stuff kind of works. Just... Yeah, that uh, actually, uh, lawyers are probably the the second largest uh, background. Uh, more of the lobbyists actually came from just the way I did, former legislative staffers. Okay. Of course, a lot of them were legislative staffers who were also lawyers because that's how they got hired as legislative staffers. But but uh, the the absolute best background you could have uh, going into becoming a legislative advocate or lobbyist is is to have actually worked uh, for a legislative committee and really got to understand the hows and whys of you know, what you're going to be asked when you go to committee because uh, you know how the uh, bill analyses are put together by committee staff because you did it yourself. So you make sure that you have all of those questions asked before you take the bill uh, to the next level. Okay. That makes sense. So we need to get more more off young off-roaders involved with the, oh, with the state could. government. Yes. In, in state government positions and particularly uh, in – state legislative positions and you know like i've had some friends that i've i've gotten started but they they never stayed with it the the best way to do that is if you see an open legislative seat and you see somebody who's running uh for that open seat who just does not have a a current position with the state legislature get into his office get on his volunteer staff for his campaign help him get elected and then keep hanging around until uh, until he hires you and begin learning the process but but you've, you've got to get into that system and the easiest way is to help somebody get elected uh, and if you're successful uh, and you're you're talented enough. The legislator, the new newly elected legislator, is going to wind up taking you on, and together uh, you'll both learn how the thing, how the process works. Well, there you go. You've heard it here, everybody. Um, get your uh, those of you that are adults that have teenagers or you know twenty somethings that are looking for something to do, get them involved, and they're off-roaders, get them involved with with your your state um, legislation, legislators and, and open seats like that so that uh, so that we can have some power back um, and and have people in there that that uh, that that can work for us. Um, you know, that's something I didn't realize was was the way to about going doing it. Of course, I'm a little too old to probably get involved with something like that now. But uh, dang, I wish I'd have known that back in the uh, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's something I've tried to encourage when I see 
uh, young folks that are interested, I, I try to steer them in that direction, but it's, it's difficult. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is uh, about the people that get attracted to off-roading, but uh, they seem to not really be interested in, in getting involved in the, to that level with the nuances of, of, of how to make laws uh, and, and how to engage in the process. Yeah, I, I, you see that just with with some of the organizations, whether it's Cal Four Wheel Drive or Corva. Um, you know, we don't have much of a youth movement, and there's so many kids that have grown up in in off roading that that uh, you know are still enjoying the off road, but don't understand that you know without without their involvement. You know, we may lose it. They may yeah. lose it. So we got we got to we got to work on that. Um, <laughs> so anybody with uh, kids that are we that are you know going off roading, if you happen to see me, understand that I may be uh, I may be doing like uh, like Bob had done and uh, has done and is trying to push people into you know into the realization that that needs to happen. So. Um, that's a warning to everybody. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about you know after after the that you you went to work for the county of Imperial um, was that well, yeah, before I, we lost all the sand dunes? Uh, well, we haven't lost all of them. No, not all, uh, of them, but we lost a large portion of the Imperial sand dunes. Yeah, that, the uh, the sand dunes thing came in the. Uh, I think it was a 1992 bill uh, where they they agreed that that uh, certain portion would be open for off road, a certain portion was going to be environment, and so on. And then, of course, Mammoth Wash stayed open, and, and uh, then down on the southern part, the dunes were open, but there was a big swath that was closed in the middle. That. That happened before I, I went down to Imperial County. I was actually when I when I got to Imperial County, I I was kind of ready to retire or try to retire because I had a place in San Felipe and I liked going down to Baja and, and staying there. So um, when I wound up uh, leaving the legislature, I. I was offered a job in, in Imperial County, just kind of a part-time thing with a, a local business, uh, like a, it was sort of like a chamber of commerce kind of group. It was a business promotion group for, from the Imperial Valley. And so I started working stuff in that county and the county saw me and got acquainted with me and they created a job because they also knew that I knew how everything worked in Sacramento and Imperial County is as far from Sacramento as you can be and still be in California. So they, right. <laughs> they felt like they, they weren't really getting understood. And because legislative districts are by population in California and Imperial County is traditionally the uh, small pops 
populated uh, county in Southern California, it wound up, the entire county wound up being a piece of either a district in Riverside County or San Diego County. And so they, they felt like they weren't getting the kind of notice they needed up in Sacramento. So they hired me and I became their director of legislative affairs and, and uh, kind of off I went again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I really did. I, I, I enjoyed working their issues and, and uh, great people down there. And when did you uh, when did you finally get to retire? Um, oh, I think it was about twenty fourteen or so. And then, uh, that's when I, my wife and I kind of were. She was working for Imperial County then as well, and since I was retired and, and uh, she was thinking about moving someplace else too. I said, you know, we spent the last 10 years telling everybody what a great place Imperial County is and it is, and that the weather isn't that bad. It's just a bunch of months in the summertime. And of course it was about March at this point and, Summertime starts in mid-April down there. So, so we started thinking, you know, that always sounded nice, but it really would be nice to be someplace that is a little more temperate. And so we drove around and found Oceanside, and so we've been in Oceanside ever since. Okay. And what is uh, what at that point did you – did you do to occupy your time? Do you still have the place in in San Felipe? No, I sold that. I haven't been haven't been to Baja now since so late last year because of health things that are giving me trouble. So it's probably the the longest period I've not been to Baja since since college days in the mid-1960s. Wow. Sad. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. I haven't had a, had an opportunity to get down there in the last couple of years as well, and I'm I'm really uh, – I'm, I've been going through withdrawals on it, you might say. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about being on the board of Ormhoff. What was, what was that like, and how long did you – were you on the board? Are you still on the board now? On Ormoff, yeah, I've been okay. on for for a number of years. Um, I I enjoy it. Uh, it's a good group of people. Uh, the organization is, is great. It, it, um, you know, when Rod Hall founded it, he, he made it different than a lot of a lot of diff, a lot of halls of fame, I guess you might say. He does not. One of the things that Rod said more often than anything was, it's not the off-road racing hall of fame, it's the off-road hall of fame. And that's what he wanted. He wanted people who excelled in racing and so on and in their classes. But more importantly, he wanted people that had something to do with the sport of off-roading and 
and helped promote it and helped help make the sport a better uh, kind of a, a more popular uh, item than uh, than just the racing aspect of it. So there's there's probably as many off-road motorsports hall of fame inductees whose role was kind of similar to mine in land use or advocacy or promotion or something else, as opposed to uh, just the guys who drive fast. The, that's, that's, that's certainly a criteria, especially for, for uh, folks to get in in competition uh, classes, but it is not the singular thing that's going to get you into the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Even some of the great ones that, that if all they did was drive fast, Rod Hall wasn't interested in, in them, particularly as a Hall of Famer. And that's the philosophy that's carried on, and I think it's a great one. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that having an impact in the in the industry, which I'll call call it as it as I don't know. I, I like to call it the off road industry. Whether you're an enthusiast or a racer or an advocate or a fabricator or you know a business owner, media, but you're in that that this part this industry. That you know, it is so much more than just the racing. Yeah, and and, uh, and that's important to to acknowledge those people. Yeah, and 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 that's why that's why when I see some other uh, organizations that do things, you know, in other in other activities like Ormoff does, I, I I really am proud of of what we have in Ormhoff because it does include, as you say, every every scope of our industry and and people have a chance to become a Hall of Famer, uh, whether they're involved in the manufacture of products or promotion of events or racing or advocacy or whatever. They're all uh, eligible to become hall of famers and and touching on every aspect of the uh, of the sport it's it's pretty important uh, consideration the way we have it set up i agree and and hopefully with with like this podcast and and others out there and some of the other media we can get that word out that uh Ormhoff is not just a racer's hall of fame, but it's, it's for everybody that's in the industry. Yep. You know, it's the, there's that possibility. Yeah. Well, excellent. Um, are there any other things that, that you want to talk about that we've skipped over or any stories that you want to add about, uh, about driving in Baja, you know, during that, that safari class race or, or any of the times that you know you were working with checkers or, or AMA events or anything like that. Uh, not that I can think of. Okay, Bob. Well, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time today, and okay, uh, Rich. I hope to see you during in September during the the Ormhoff inductee dinners, 
and uh, the celebration of those being inducted this year. Hope to meet you in person and shake your hand. Okay, look forward to seeing you in September. All right, you take care, Bob. Thank okay, you. Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you would think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.